This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Grant Collins will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. All right, everybody. Today it is December 1st. Markets have been all over the place this past week um, due to the concerns of the Omicron virus or the new, you know, um, newest deviation of the coronavirus. We just recently saw there was a case today in the United States, came into California. Uh, the person had visited South Africa. Apparently, his symptoms were mild and he's recovering nicely. Um, it's really three big pitfalls coming into 2022 that might slow growth. First is going to be tightening U.S. monetary policy. Second is we're seeing slower growth in China. Uh, both the United States and China together account for 40% of the globe's GDP. Uh, and lastly, it's this newest deviation of the virus, the Omicron. There's a lot we don't know about it. Um, Grant, let's kind of like start our conversation off with this this new variant. Well, you saw the markets react with two straight days of down. So the Dow lost 460 points, S&P 54 points, NASDAQ down 283 points today. VIX is up about four points. So we're seeing more market volatility really in reaction to this new Delta variant or not, not Delta variant, but new variant of, of COVID. Yeah. We're going to have to learn the whole Greek alphabet. Yeah, it seems like they skipped maybe a, uh, a letter or two there. Yeah. But realistically, what we're seeing is is high global risks. So it came out of South Africa, as you said. Now there's confirmed cases in over 20 countries so far. We're seeing some countries following the U.S. lead that are restricting travel access out of countries like South Africa. Still... A lot of the World Health Organization is says it's going to take a couple of weeks to understand how the variant uh, will will be affected with vaccines and, and other therapeutics treatments. But I think you're seeing a big reaction at really because of the unknown of the virus so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, one one good thing I guess is Pfizer CEO um, Albert Barella is pretty confident that. Their company's COVID-19 treatment is going to be effective against this variant. Uh, other antivirals, um, you know, we, we still have to figure all this out. It will probably be a few weeks um, before we have, we're more clear. Um, you know, Pfizer, their their pill, we'll have to see whether that works. Uh, I mean, the older variants, uh, you know, the Pfizer pill, it seemed that it reduced hospitalization and death by 89%. Um, that's when it was coupled with a widely used HIV drug as well within three days of symptoms. So we got to see if that works. Uh, I mean, right now, the advice is still to get boosters and to get vaccines if you're not already vaccinated and everything else um, can't hurt. Uh, yeah, we just 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 a lot. We just don't know. And this would be the second pill. So I believe it was uh, Merck who came out with another pill. Mm-hmm. Um, the Pfizer seemed to have better stats and statistics around hospitalizations and death. Uh, really it's kind of a cool pill where it seems it blocks enzymes from the ri- virus to replicate. And then, as you said, it uses a typical HIV drug. So it has a higher concentration to combat the virus. I'm not a doctor, but it sounds like the, the science works on that one mm-hmm. for me. Really, the big thing is, is we did see Pfizer 
now expects that they're going to manufacture 80 million courses of the pill. That's an increase from the original 50 million. We saw the Biden administration already bought 10 million courses in a $5 billion deal. So it seems like Pfizer is continuing to be one of the leaders in different treatments for COVID. Um, so in terms of them and Moderna, you continue to see their stocks rally. Yeah. Um, we should note that we've talked several weeks about whether or not Jerome Powell is going to be leading the Fed. Uh, that has come to fruition. President Biden made the announcement the previous Monday, uh, following a lot of weeks of speculation that Jerome Powell will once again, um, you know, get the nomination. Um, it seemed like he got pretty good bipartisan consensus. You had Senator Pat Toomey out of Pennsylvania who, you know, sang his praises. Um, so, you know, on both both sides of that chamber, there are people who are pretty happy with the work he's done. Uh, I mean, the only other one it could have been will be uh, would have been Lael, but she uh, she's she's vice chair now. So. I think it was the right call from Biden. A lot of good monetary policy coming out of Powell's administration there at the Fed in 2020, getting money, getting dollars into the economy, helping stabilize a lot of businesses, you know, the bond buying program program, as well as the loose monetary policy with rates definitely helped us weather the storm there. There are a couple um, folks on the left, Senator Warren being one of them, I think the senator out of Rhode Island was another uh, who who didn't look like Powell based on his, Warren even called him a dangerous man because of his loose banking regulations, even though it seems like all the banks passed during their stress test, which was the pandemic. Uh, so it seems like the, our banking industry is definitely stronger than it was in 2007, 2008. And he is a, a big reason why. You saw Janet Yellen, who was the chair before uh, Jerome, also echo those praises. Overall, there there was some recent days of scrutiny. We've already talked about this, about some of the investments that some of the governors and, and feds made. Um, but, you know, that's been happening for a while. Moreover, we did see that uh, Fed officials are now may increase the buying of, of bonds, so tapering that. But they still don't think that rates will increase at least till June 2022, which is uh, market has already priced some of those in uh, being on the lookout. I suspect we'll probably see two rate hikes in 2022. Um, and the, the new vice chair, that is a, that is a big step. Um, she is the only Democrat on the Fed board, and she has objections of she had 12 in 2020 alone uh, and really was the only one uh, really big on, on climate change and how the Fed could be helpful in that, as well as the um, racial inequality. Her roles as the Fed chair, vice chair, will have a big impact on the interest rates are set, also uh, inflation, which is a hot topic, and then a, really a direct regulation into the nation's biggest bank. So JP Morgan, Chase, Bank of America, Wells, et cetera. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if now that she has that spot to see if she can actually implement some of the policies that she wants. Well, yeah, her, her positions on regulation, whether it's talking about Volstead or, or you know, Dodd-Frank, um, so obviously, you know, in the aftermath of 08 was more pro-regulation than some of the other people on the board. However, it does appear to be that Jerome Powell and her have you know a good working relationship. She's been in several administrations. She was put on the board under the 
Obama administration for you know the fourteen year term. Before that, she was an economic advisor of different capacities in both the Bush uh, White House as well as the Clinton one. So, uh, ironically, there were progressives who, at one point, were not singing her praises due to the fact that they think she was kind of in line with, you know, the pretty centrist at the end of the day policies of both Clinton and Obama. When we're looking back at it. There's also a concern that she's she's always been for kind of looser policy, uh, lower rates, and it's not necessarily an inflation hawk. Well, we're having biggest sticker price shock since the 90s, so people are more concerned about that. But I, I mean, it might be just a different time, right? I mean, when facts change, you know, the saying goes, I change my mind, what do you do? So, you know, if she's looking at the last 10, 15 years of sub two rates. I mean, that that could be a very similar thing. Absolutely. And we did see her be one of the biggest pressers for a digital dollar. So she's the could be seen as a voice for financial innovation at the Fed there, which if you want to talk about the last five years with cryptocurrency picking up, having someone in the Fed who's understanding them and then looking towards how the Fed can integrate that. I think that's a big step forward as well. And a digital dollar could help people who are underbanked, which is currently a big problem in a lot of communities throughout the country. Absolutely. So let's change gears here, Drew. Let's talk about the world tax. Uh, So this is in response to the 15% global minimum tax that when it was agreed upon in October between, uh, I think it was 115 nations. I might have that wrong. Uh, but really, this is a would be a big win for the U.S. commerce as they are now able to tax some of the profits of these multinational giants where they have have historically seeked tax havens. Uh, Drew seems like there may be some issues getting this through the U.S. Congress. We got to get everyone to vote on this. Um, what's your take on the success of this, and, and what should we be looking for? Well. Hopefully it passes because right now you say, as you mentioned, there's something like a hundred round odd companies. Um, and if it isn't a 15% tax that we can agree on and within the agreements, it's really close to being revenue neutral right now. Um, so they've done a lot of work. We might actually be in the positive, but the issue is if this falls apart, uh, just in terms of a multilateral standpoint, I mean, multilateral democracies have, not been winning over the last few years and getting big global agreements. And if it does fall apart, I just think the alternative is going to be a lot worse because uh, there's going to be a lot of vindictive governments, especially in Europe, that will will come out with an axe to the Amazons and the Googles of the world um, who are putting money in havens. And I just think these the corporate boards at the end of the day aren't going to realize that. So they're going to think this is the best they can get out of it. Um and I think there's going to be some lobbying, even though it's not obviously advantageous to them. The status quo is, I just think they realize that the status quo is not going to exist anymore. So they might as well take this while they can, as opposed to waiting for much, much more punitive measures uh, that comes across from a variety of governments. Exactly. So rather have one global or get hit by multiple nations mm-hmm. is, is something that's concerning for these large multinational companies. And we have already seen that in Europe, right? I mean, we've seen that with the, with the Google and the Amazon antitrust policies hit with fines that could continue to happen. And, and also from the United States perspective, 
they're not getting any tax revenue from any of those companies today. So uh, some piece of the pie is better than no pie. If we think about Thanksgiving. Oh, it's just been cities like New York and the Denver's of the world just parading themselves for no no municipal revenue. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, you can talk about 400 jobs, but obviously that's 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 an issue, too. Well, in Washington, wouldn't have an allocation of those profits. Mm-hmm. Also, the multinational companies that are operating in the United States that they don't see. So some of these large European firms where U.S., they have a presence in the U.S., but are not taxed in the U.S., they'd be able to get grab some of those tax rights. Um, that could be 50 or 60 foreign multinational firms. So overall, it could increase the revenue. And if it doesn't go through, I think you're going to continue to see some of these trade war tariffs that we've had um, continuing to pick up. And they could even be more of a factor if this trade, does, if this tax deal does not go through. Yeah, it's going to be a black eye on pretty much every government who came to agree on this. And then, yeah, like you said, it's going to be a lot more punitive and it's just going to be more of a narrative of chaos, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, hopefully it goes through. Um, one thing we should mention is there's certainly been a boon for Europe's early stage tech companies. Uh, if you want to look at the last 10, 20 years, it's not been great for European tech uh, really since the, the they they haven't been in the sector really since uh, post World War II. I mean, they had Skype was their big big name. They got gobbled up uh, for eight point five billion dollars. Then you have a Spotify with the valuation of you know roughly forty five billion and change or so. But I mean, look at all the companies that we have that are now valued at a trillion. Um, and but yeah, that that's definitely started to change. There's been. A, definitely an influx of capital. Um, Ten years ago, European firms just had a tenth of all VC money invested globally, and now it's a little over a quarter. Um, so that's gone. And there's a lot more unicorn cities, you know, for cities that have uh, privately held startups that are worth more than a billion. Um, and there's just there's just a lot more firms and innovation coming out of Europe right now. And it may just be because that is a, a spot where VC hasn't been. And so that may be a, a spot for people to now find attractive opportunities. Historically, in the last, say, 20, 25 years, if you wanted to make it as an early tech company, you needed to flock to a Silicon Valley or, or the, in the U.S. Now it seems that venture capital is taking a more global view and that the European companies are are a good opportunity for them. We did also see SAP is the closest thing on tech to a tech giant and they're about founded three years before Microsoft and they're roughly worth around a 15th of Microsoft. So <laughs> yeah. if that's the biggest and it barely touches one of the, the tech giants. It's they're a little behind the curve. And a big part of that too is that companies haven't made it as attractive as they did stateside mostly talking about employee stock options. So, I mean, that's been a huge, huge part of the incentive structure in any of these firms, but then a lot of newer ones. We're talking about uh, DocuSign, you name it. They just attract a lot of talent by giving out equity like Tic Tacs, you know, early stage. Uh, Europe didn't necessarily do that. And a lot of these firms have been profitable. They haven't been that much more unprofitable than, than ours. It's just, I think it was really way of one attracting human capital and finding incentive structures which they definitely seem to be doing right now 
Well, you have seen tech companies go public and they still haven't turned the revenue that they should. Take Twitter, for example. That's why we see, uh, and I think we might talk about it later, but Jack Dorsey's stepped down. And mm-hmm. the big reason is a lot of the investors don't think Twitter has made the revenue that they believe. There's there's a slew of tech companies that have been, pro- I mean, Tesla, for example. I mean, now they've had a couple quarters, but they market themselves as a tech company and and they didn't have profitable quarters for years. I mean, with the exposure to tech, with a lot of these companies, we've named, you know, the, the Metas and the Microsofts and everything else being about a fifth of market cap. And then the rest of the tech, you know, like you said, they, they IPO and a lot of times they're wildly unprofitable. Uh, so that's definitely a changing landscape than it used to be. Um, usually wait till you were more established to go public and now it's not the case. You're You're just trading off a brand a lot of times. One inflationary measure we should touch on, Drew, is uh, price of oil. So if you look at the gas pumps, uh, you're seeing gas go from 211 a year ago for a gallon of gas. Now the national average is uh, $3.41 based on Monday's number. We did see the Biden administration take a little bit of, uh, I would say, a more political symbolic step rather than it actually is. But uh, the administration will tap into the st- strategic petrol petroleum reserves, excuse me. Uh, so port partnering with India, China, Japan, Republic of Korea and the United Kingdom, where they're going to release 50 million barrels trying to uh, help reduce the, the price of oil at the pumps, really, because I believe that it's purely political because high gas prices hits everyone and that isn't good for the Biden administration. This move is also symbolic because it is almost like a loan and those barrels will need to be replaced in the upcoming years, which also could have a uh, impact on future oil prices. Um, So that's something that we need to consider as well. We did see OPEC say that they are happy with the current supply. I think they, a lot of those OPEC companies or countries, I should say, uh, took a bit of a beating in 2020 when we saw oil demand fall off a cliff and now they're trying to uh, recoup some of those profits. Yeah. And as I mean, the reserves are definitely a short term measure, as you mentioned, but uh, OPEC, it certainly ruffled some feathers. I, I think the ironic thing is with the new variant, you've seen gas began to crater again. Um, and you're also seeing a lot of analysts who expect uh you know, it to drop off because, you know, you're going to have at least in the short term, another decrease in demand. Absolutely. Yeah. People start traveling less, people start driving less, working from home more. It's it's the same cycle that we we see ourselves. And it repeats itself. So we've been dealing with several months of sticker shock now, but I I think that's going to be remedied uh, this month, maybe being a peak. Um, We might think they're seeing some declines in Florida and in other states and, uh, there's certainly no shortage of analysts who think that that trend will continue. Uh, let's kind of let's bring up you know what we missed, and I think it's a lot. This, there's been a huge shakeup uh, when we're looking at corporate boards. Uh, I'd like to mention that uh, Jack Dorsey. You mentioned that earlier. He's stepping down. Prague Agro uh, Agrawal is going to be the youngest CEO of a Fortune 500 company. He's 37 years old. He started at 27. He's been around the decade, and it's kind of been a New York rise, um, you know, from CTO now CEO, and and he started pretty much just as an engineer. Um, so yeah, that's that's a wild rise. We're also seeing 
Mark Benioff um, of Salesforce is looking to step back uh, and, and in order to take the reins, Brett Taylor uh, is now going to be a co-CEO, um, but that looks like a temporary thing. You know, it's going to be a lot of molding and, and, and advice and just making sure, you know, the ship runs smoothly before I think Mark ultimately steps down. Uh, but it's really just going to show that founders of these firms don't necessarily want to run them forever. Um, Jack Dorsey certainly seemed to be sick of his job. I mean, I remember what one point he was going to go to Africa for nine months. And, uh, <laughs> you know, well, he has quite the look now with the bald head and the, and the big beard. I, I have to say I'm a fan. It, it was interesting because you saw him being a founder of, of Twitter. And then in 2008, I believe he was uh, fired or, or stepped down from that role in 2015. He came back. It seems very interesting to me that he was also the CEO of Square as well as Twitter. So CEO of, of two, I would say, pretty large tech companies and manning both of those, I'm, I'm sure, is is a <laughs> two CEO roles is, is a lot more than just one. You also did see um, Square now is changing their corporate name to Block. So it seems like Jack Dorsey is really trying to focus on um, Square, now Block, uh, which originally was a credit card reader for businesses. Now they're trying to focus on new technologies like blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Uh, so it seems like his his big shift is focused there. The market did re- react well with a 1% up in their stocks uh, after trading. Another one that we talked about with our friends over at Drawing Capital is Snowflake. Uh, they jumped more than 11% after they beat revenue earnings um, and they recorded sales of $334 million during the third quarter, which was uh, up from the $306 million that were expected. So a um, couple movements, as you said here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's really, really kind of shaking the corporate world. Uh, I mean, in terms of what else, uh, we still have debt ceiling, still a lingering issue. Uh, Build Back Better is still a lingering issue. Chuck Schumer says he'd like to kind of have a vote on it in the week of December 13th. Be kind of finalizing the big. I mean, it's it's the it's the f- finalization of the agenda Biden ran on. I mean, we got infrastructure through, and then this will be the social aspect of it. Uh, it's certainly been pared down from you know original six trillion, then three three and a half became the kind of midway point. Now it's now it's going to be one seven one five somewhere around there. So we'll see what happens with that. Uh, but there's a lot of selling that has to be done, um, you know, between the between now and then. But but yeah, the, the other thing is the other thing coming out of the hill I should mention is the chip bill, which seriously invests in semiconductors. We at one point were a major leader in making semiconductors, uh, not so much anymore. Um, so that passed. Uh, I forget which chamber it passed one. I think it passed the Senate, but now we're just waiting on the votes in the House. So that could be. You know, another legislation that wraps up by year end that would be uh, seems to be popular on both sides. That we try and shore up manufacturing, and clearly, not having semiconductors built in house is a major source of inflation when there are when our global supply chains that we've built completely, you know, evaporate. Well, so. everything, so everything that we create, cars, the likes, all need semiconductors. Yeah, so if if you want to pay forty thousand dollars for a car that has two fifty 
thousand on it. I mean, you know, be my guest, and that's that's kind of the world that exists when we're not making our own semiconductors. But, but yeah, I mean, might be looking at my baby blue Rav. Had it since high school. Might be time to flip that, but we'll see. <laughs> All right, everybody. Uh, we'll do one more week uh, in December. Uh, we'll do a mid-December, maybe. Maybe. Anyway, the last two weeks of uh, December and January will be off, obviously, for the New Year and holidays and everything. Um, so hopefully you're all gearing up for the holiday spirit. Uh, thanks for listening. Likes and subscribes, and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WellFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.